It is what's involved, and I did promise you uh, a special guest. And um, I'm, I'm going to go on a limb here, go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say a special guest who I've been really looking forward to chatting to because one of the main reasons is I'm going to say to him, and I want to be able to ask him in person if he's nuts. And that special guest uh, is none other than Ryan Johnson. Hello, Ryan. Hey there, David. Yeah, um, nuts. That's a nice way to describe me. <laughs> why why would I say this? Well, um, Ryan is a research coordinator uh, and the National Geographic spokesperson at the Blue Wilderness Research Unit. Um, what we're talking about is National Geographic, uh, it's Nat Geo Wild, I believe, um, have, it's, it's their Shark Fest month. Um, and Ryan's been involved in something called shark versus whale. And we're going to talk about that, and then you'll understand why maybe I say, in my opinion, Ryan is nuts. Um, but let's get back to you, Ryan. Tell me a little bit about, about Ryan. Where did you grow up, and how did you get into, into this particular line of work? Um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a long journey. I'm, you can tell from my accent, I'm originally from New Zealand. I've been here now over 20 years um, and I grew up like you know most kids in New Zealand swimming on the beach you 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 were surrounded by the stories of the dolphins being the good guys and the sharks being the bad guys and and the shark uh, and the beach I actually swam at as a kid was called shark alley um, I, I didn't see any sharks there but you know sharks were always part part of my mind and and growing up in New Zealand animals and nature and wildlife is is, is a big part of growing up and very early on, I knew I wanted a career in that, working working with animals, wildlife, and nature. Then I, yeah, I basically finished up my undergraduate in New Zealand, was looking around, wondering what to do in my postgraduate research, and I kept on getting drawn to Africa. And and I had a professor in my department who who was working with the University of Pretoria, and I went and spoke to her and asked her to put in touch put me in touch with the University of Pretoria. And way back in 1998, she put me in touch with uh, one of the professors there and I started talking to him and he invited me over to, to do my postgraduate research. And I came, packed my bags, came to Africa and South Africa. And, um, and if I look at a moment when it kicked off and it was in 1998 with the shark research, it was, um, I was walking down the corridor and I saw this advertisement about the cage diving industry, the white shark cage diving industry, and essentially the government was asking for research to be done to investigate whether it was impacting on the on the amount of attacks on surface and, and humans. And I was fascinated by that, and I applied for the position, and I got the position to to conduct this research for my master's degree. And they sent me off on this little island, Dyer Island, for a year to to study whether the white shark cage diving industry was impacting on, on on the sharks and the humans. And um, yeah, that really kicked it off. I mean, you seem to have an absolute, and I, and I only can, my only frame of reference is is I've been lucky enough to see uh, that particular episode, uh, which is called Shark versus Whales. Uh, that's going to be screened in South Africa on Nat, uh, Nat Geo Wild uh, next Friday. I think it's the 17th it's going to be screened. Um, but uh, I got a sneak preview, and that's why I think you're absolutely nuts. Because 
Um, you're dealing with great white sharks, and yet you seem incredibly passionate about these animals. I don't know. You know, I'm a, I'm a huge animal lover. I mean, and 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 in in my time, um, I've qualified as a as a field guide, and I've been out in the bush, and I can lead people on walks in Big Five country. But there's something about a great white shark, and it's a primal thing that terrifies me. Why are you different? You know, the reason I'm different is because you know, I've been working them, with them for 15 years. I've been in positions where if these sharks and the great whites were what we see on in Jaws, et cetera, where they, they would have killed me very easily, would have attacked me. And so many times I've got myself in bad positions or positions where I'm vulnerable and they haven't done anything. Um, I, I think at the moment it changed was I was with a man called Andre Hartman who in, in the shark world is a legend for initially doing the free diving with the great white sharks and I begged him, take me with you, take me with you for, for a couple months and he finally finally let me come with him and um, he he was actually a little bit hungover so he said yeah just jump in the water with one Ryan and I'm like come on you get in on Andre and I'm like he's like no just get in and I remember sitting in the back of the boat with all my wetsuit and gear on and everything was going through my head the Jaws music all of that stuff was going through my head and I put my feet in the water this great white swam past I took my feet back out of the water totally subconsciously and this happened about five or six times. And then I jumped, finally jumped into the water. And this great white shark just swam past me. And I was expecting this attack. I was expecting, you know, this is over for me. And it ignored me. And it just swam past, looked at me, and I went, huh? And then it circled around the boat and came back and swam past again. And, and again, it ignored me. And I spent 30, 40 minutes in the water with that shark circling me um, and never did I feel a moment of aggression towards me and I think that was the moment where I started seeing them very differently you know I, I, I always respect that they're these you know these apex predators they're really great at what they do which is hunting seals hunting fish hunting whales we know now but you know if they know what we are if we behave right and we're, we're respectful and cautious they don't represent a massive danger to us. When, once you get past that, then you can start really appreciating them as a really fine animal. I, 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 I kind of agree, but, you know, when I have a look, um, and I've spent some time at the coast, not a lot, but, you know, the things like the other kinds of sharks, the the, the tigers, the the um, the black tips, um, the bull sharks, for example, those you can look at and go, listen, apex predator, it, it works on, on instinct, it, it, it is a predator, you know, be, a, be aware. I think for me, what, what makes me feel more afraid of a great white is that, I don't know if it's something that I just pick up, but there's an intelligence there. These are not just automated killing machines. Um, and it's particularly clear, I think, in, in a great white. You're you're 100%. Um, and, and I'm still learning about this as well. And I think during this documentary, I learned so much after seeing Helen attack this whale. Because even me, you know, most of the predatory activity that I see has been these high-speed 
highly aggressive, highly dynamic attacks of the sharks coming from deep, breaching out, hitting the seals, and you think, wow. And, you know, you almost start thinking it's a little bit one-dimensional, the shark, but when you saw how Helen um, approached this whale, which was, you know, over twice as long and probably ten times the weight of her, and how she adapted her behaviour, she she approached it cautiously, strategically, incredible patience, you realise that they are intelligent, they know how to adapt their behaviour to, you know, succeed on this in, in the waters, and there's a lot more going on in their brains and in them as sharks than, you know, that high-speed predator, ambush predator that we sort of see breaching out of the water. It's absolutely fantastic. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, about the the, the, the the documentary about the sharks versus whales that you are with, um, because the cinematography is unbelievable, and I want to find out more about that, um, and also some of the things where, um, if you'd asked me in a situation, particularly the one situation which we're going to discuss, um, to get into the water, um, I would have answered with two words and one of them would have been off um so let's find out why ryan does what he does uh, when we come back it is what's involved when we come back my special guest uh, ryan johnson we're talking uh, all about uh, the documentary that's going to be um airing on nat geo wild uh this coming friday i believe it's the 17th um that you'll be able to watch it it's absolutely unbelievable more from ryan when we come back and we're back. It is what's involved. My special guest is Ryan Johnson. We're talking about shark versus whale. So before we, we get into that, obviously, um, Ryan, you are what your studies were and everything is in marine biology. Am I correct? Yeah, I, I started in my postgraduate um, actually at University of Pretoria, which is, you know, far away from the ocean. And, um, you know, and, and basically from then on, I switched to marine stuff, switched to great white sharks. And it's been, yeah, it's been 15 years on, on more now, 18 years working primarily just on sharks. I love them. Fantastic. Now, how did you get involved with uh, the guys from uh, National Geographic? Well, I collected this footage, you know, I, I was very fortunate, you know, I got the drone up over what I initially thought was going to be filming a, a carcass of a whale and I was hoping some great whites would come along and start um, feeding on it. But as soon as I got the drone above the whale, I realized this whale was alive. It was weakened, but it was alive. And then, you know, the big shark, Helen, four meters great white turned up and went through this whole process of hunting and ultimately drowning um, this whale. And I was sitting there with 50 minutes of incredible footage as well as a heck of a lot of questions. You know, my questions were, is this something happen that happens often? Do sharks hunt whales often? We just don't see it. Or did Helen intrinsically or instinctively know how to go about this hunt? So I had all these questions and um, I didn't have the money to do much research or, or, or to really investigate this because it's a big project. And so I approached Earth Touch, who's a South African production company, um, about turning this footage into a documentary. And they went and approached National Geographic. And National Geographic just, you know, fell in love with the idea, said, yes, but we wanted you to get to the bottom of this. So we'll stick a bunch of money 
so that we can send you on and basically an expedition for a year to to study and try to get to the bottom of this as well as make the documentary. So um, that's really how we got involved with National Geographic, um, who essentially sponsored the documentary and all the research that went afterwards trying to get to the bottom of this uh, this thing we saw. Now, this, this all happened a couple of years ago. I mean, we, we, this just didn't happen recently. No, the, the actual sighting, you're right, was over two years ago now. Um, so really it was, you know, from that initial sighting, it was then going forward and A, getting getting the funding to go and research us more, but also then to, you know, basically spend a year because, you know, there's a very critical time where this type of event can happen and it's during that annual migration of the humpbacks from Antarctica up passing through areas like Mossel Bay where there's a lot of great whites through the sardine run up into Mozambique and then that return migration back down. So we really had to get on the spots where there was a potential conflict or a potential place where the sharks and the whales would come together. And, you know, nature nature works on its own timeline, so we basically have to wait for nature to give us that chance. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, I mean, and, and this is where I, I was I was leading up to in terms of this question with the, the with National Geographic behind you. Um, when we are when when we see the documentary and, and, and this, the filming and um, it's, it's not for the faint of heart by any stretch of the imagination. OK, this is this is real stuff that happens in the wild. How many people are involved in that? Because. Um, I just think of certain of the scenes, and, I, and I, I've seen it in, in, in a couple of the scenes. You go in there with almost like a, a heavy, heavy-duty selfie stick with a camera on the end of it. Um, how many other people are in the water with you? Yes, my, my, my selfie stick is more sort of a defense than a, um, <laughs> than a filming one. No, the, the, the team was, was about six of us. Um, and and it's really nice working with Earth Touch, which is a South African company, because our whole production team except for me, was South African. Um, so we had a, a crazy underwater cameraman called Barry Skinstad, who, who, you know, he's an inspiration because, you know, while I'm pulling on my first fin, he's already jumped in the water and he's off filming and he would stay in there for like four or five hours while, you know, you can last like half an hour. So, you know, we had him underwater with me. My wife, Fiona Aest, who's a well-known underwater photographer, she was also under the water with us um, taking the stills and, and second camera. Then topside, you know, it's it's a small crew, um, but it's really a couple of mates, guys I've worked with for many years. Hansa Winshaw is a cameraman, and then we got, um, we've got the sound guy. Gosh, I forgot his name. Now he's going to kick me, kick me for that. Um <laughs> So, yeah, so it's about five of us, then we'll have a skipper. So five or six of us. And we become a really close team because you're living this whole event together. And, you know, whilst I'm on camera, all the guys behind, they're actually the guys who are doing most of the work. Um, and, and, and you become a family. And then there's Daniel who just runs. Daniel, I have to mention him. He runs everything. He does all the data capture. He makes sure all the cameras are clean and everything. So, uh, yeah, so... Close little team there. Because as I said, and I'm going to mention this a good few times, the cinematography is absolutely phenomenal. You've got some shots. Um, I think, um, well, obviously the whale one is is totally unique. I've never seen that. But just some of them um, with those, those those great whites when they breach, that, that an animal that size 
can hit that hard and get that far out of the water is absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah, it's, it, it is. Um, and I forgot to mention, we had one more, and he, he's a very quiet guy until he has a few beers. And as we call him Boris the Blade, he's actually the, the wildlife cameraman. And what he does is, you know, he'll sit there, you know, particularly with that breaching, and you don't see it, he'll sit there for three hours. He won't say a word, and he'll just have these incredible cameras that Earth Touch has, you know, targeted right at those decoys. And we can be telling, you know, with those breaches, we can be towing for three hours straight and maybe get one breach. And he has to be spot on when that breach happens. He has to be recording. He has to have the camera framed. And he has to have it in focus. And this guy is just insane. He'll just sit there and you'll forget about him. But, you know, when the breach happens, it's going to be sharp and stuff. And obviously, EarthTouch, which is a production company, have some incredible camera. Those, those breaching shots were sh shot on a camera called the Phantom, which shoots – the Phantom Flex, which shoots up to 1,000 frames a second um, if the light's wow. perfect. So when you're shooting at that frame rate, you can slow that footage down massively. So and, and, and then, you know, as a viewer, you can really see just how incredible those breaches are because when you're watching it with your eye, it's over in a heartbeat. It's like boom, boom, and it's gone. And you, you really can't contemplate what just happened. But once you see it on that super slow-mo camera, it's... It, something special now let's talk about that when, when, when we talk about because one of the one of the, the instances whilst you were doing this research is um you were towing these decoys out of a large seal and a baby seal that's where we get to see some of those fantastic breaches but it looked to me and if i understand correctly that in terms of of which of those got struck the most it's generally the baby one that that the sharks went for no, exactly. Um, that surprised me. You know, when I, when I set up this experiment, it's a really simple little experiment, but it's quite elegant. I wanted to see whether these sharks almost had a sense of their own mortality as predators. I Would they go for a small, safe option that would not fight back, would not injure them, but gave them a, only a little bit of reward? Or would they go for that bigger option, the big reward, big success, but the chance of them being injured by an adult seal striking back at them, biting them or hitting their eye or something is, is, is a real threat to them, even as predators. And the fact that they consistently, time and time again, chose that baby seal that really doesn't have a big reward associated with it, told me that these sharks are conservative. They are aware that they can be injured as predators and if, you know, a great white shark loses its eye to a big seal or something, then its life as a predator is essentially over. So they are aware that they can be injured and they are at risk of losing their ability to hunt. And that was what made me start thinking again about Helen taking on this whale that, you know, a big humpback whale can put out a massive amount of damage onto a potential predator, you know, with those those pectoral fins or those tail slats can cause significant danger. And why would Helen go about and start attacking this type of prey that's so much bigger than her, so much more powerful than her? And what I got to was the realisation that this whale was weakened. It had been entangled by ropes. It had a lot of mottled skin on it, showing that it wasn't healthy and that she must have been able to read the behavior 
or the, the visual, the look of that whale and determine that it was very unlikely to fight back significantly. Thus, she was safe to try to attack it. And that type of communication back and forth between the prey and the predator is was remarkable but you know you do have to remember that's what predators are designed to do they're designed to take out the weak so they must know and be able to identify weak vulnerable prey and i think that's what she did wonderful stuff we are chatting to ryan johnson about uh, this whole shark fest uh, that natio wild's got going um coming up on the 17th is uh, shark versus whale when we come back though there's there's one bit uh, and then I want to get on to the shark, Helen. But there is one bit where you guys are in the water and my heart stood still. So when we come back, I want to have a chat about that. It is what's involved. My special guest is Ryan Johnson. We're talking about uh, part of the Shark Fest. The one documentary uh, episode is called Shark versus Whale. More when we come back. It is what's involved. My special guest is Ryan Johnson. We're talking about uh, the documentary Shark versus Whale. One instance, though, Ryan, you guys were, were in the water and, you know, you, you kind of, as, if you're watching the, 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 the documentary, you actually kind of know what's coming. But when it happens, oh, my giddy aunt. And that is when you guys actually were in the water filming a great white um, and, and a great white attacking a seal. It, it was beautifully horrific to watch. How was it? To be in there because you 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 sort of I, I saw your reaction afterwards when you got out of the water but I mean yeah I got to be honest if I was there and something like that happened I might have been the second person that people saw walking on water. Um, you're right. Your, your description um sort of horrifically fabulous or whatever is it, it, is correct. We 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 went up to Plattenberg Bay to 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 look at how these sharks were hunting seals in this very sort of shallow environment with white sand where they can't camouflage themselves. And, and part of that was obviously me and Barry hopping in the water to 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 film the seals, to film their behavior, the pods, et cetera. And, and when this attack or when the, the shark came, it was, it, it, it was surreal for me. Um, I'd been separated from Barry um, and I was actually working my way back to the boat. And um, then this, you know, the first thing I saw of it was really the, the sort of half of the seal sort of twitching. Um, and I was like, what's that? And then behind it, this great white shark appeared, took the seal in its mouth and just started thrashing. And this was happening like three or four meters away from me. And I was like, oh my goodness. And you, you, you're faced with decisions you make in that situation, um, you know, and the first thing you know about freediving with grey whites is you don't show fear, you don't panic and you don't try to get away from them, don't try to flee because you're immediately going to be communicating to the grey white that you're also a potential prey and, um, and you could perk its interest by that. So I knew I had a stand my ground um, if I wanted to get out of the situation. But at the same time, I was, I was confronted with this new dilemma, which is I don't want to tell the shark that I'm threatening it 
or pressure in it to take that seal off him because you know it's like when a dog's eating food and you go up and try to take that food away that's when you're going to get bitten so i didn't want to be too aggressive but also i didn't want to be too defensive and run away so you sort of on this tightrope i felt i was on a tightrope balancing which i wanted to make my, my presence known make myself big but i didn't want to ever get to a stage where i was threatening it to such an extent that it thought i might be challenging it for the prey um and then you know I, <laughs> The shark just had this prey in its mouth and it decided to come right up at me and you know circle me probably a meter away from me and you know i wasn't i had my 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 shark stick which i could prod it away with on and i had the gopro on the end of it so i i think the footage that came out of that sort of shark circling me with the seal in its mouth thrashing around is 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 it's more about me just keeping something between myself and the shark and a gopro being there filming rather than me doing any great sort of cinema cinema work um but again you know i think i managed you know i i, I didn't feel that shark being aggressive to me it carried on eating and ultimately it just swam off with this prey in the, its mouth and and ate it away and we got back on the boat but um yeah it was um it was a lot of adrenaline going on and, and when i hopped out of the water i think all that adrenaline just sort of just flooded out of my body and i you know it, it, it got quite emotional um you know, not only to see that but also to be able to um you know get out and be safe well i mean let's be honest you know that is not our natural home i mean the ocean is is not where we are naturally at home these days and, you know, what I find fascinating is, is there have been incidences of great white shark attacks. Some, th some of the research and, and some of the, the, the theory that has come back is that when they have attacked um, uh, surfers or whatever the case may be, it's been a case of mistaken identity. But we're still the weakest. I mean, you know, when, when, when you, you talk about apex predators looking and culling the weakest from the, the herd, we, we're right up there in the water as the weakest. Um, so what do you think? Do you think they can distinguish between us and, and go, okay, maybe, maybe, you know, we could cause some damage um, and, or, or do you think they see us as big seals? I don't know. No, they, they definitely, is, we're, we're not on their menu. Um, you even look at the attacks on, on humans um, and each one of them is tragic and I don't want to trivialize any of them, but the reality is, 99% of those attacks by great white sharks on humans, it's only a case of one or two bites. The shark bites, bites, and then disappears and leaves. And most of the people who die from the great white shark attacks, it's because of blood loss. Um, where now even 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 a, even a, even if it's an investigatory investigatory bite by the great white shark can cause massive damage on on humans because we are so flimsy. But the sharks don't consume us. That's very different from seals. If they hit a seal, they consume the seal. They want the seal. If they hit a whale, like they did, it's all about consumption. If they hit fish, they take on dolphins. It's all about consumption. With us, it's bite, you know, inflict that damage, and then depart. Yeah. And that straight away that, that we aren't on their diet. And when you get into a situation like where I was, um, um, 
or when I free dive with them in the past or when any humans have free dive with them in those control, control situations, you do realize you're not actually on the menu and that these sharks can distinguish very quickly and very well between humans and prey. When you okay, get in, I'll, yeah. I'll, give you, I'll give you that. Okay, but then where do, where do whales come along? Because I know um, just reading the, the, the press release, you were out doing your research when you got this call of a whale that was apparently dead. You went over there and you had your drone up and that's where you got this, this spectacular footage of this humpback whale. But we can talk about a humpback whale, and you know, but to, to actually picture the sheer size of those animals, they're, they're massive animals. Um, and as you said, the one that you'd spotted was, was, had been caught up or tangled up in some long line from fishing line, which I think is, that just really, you know, that really gets the bunny hugger in me going. Um, but that aside, so this was a weakened shark, and then you called the shark that uh, made that particular attack Helen. Tell me a bit about Helen. How would you know what shark it is? Yeah, well, you know, having worked with these sharks for so many years, um, you, you, you do recognize individuals. Um, and Helen, I first encountered back in 2012 during the, what was called the O-Search expedition, where we we put satellite uh, tags on 50 great white sharks around the coast. Um, and that involved catching them, bringing them up onto this uh, platform that was submerged, bringing the platform up out of the water, then having that 15-minute window where we attached the satellite tag to the dorsal fin. We did a num number of other things uh, to the sharks, taking blood, taking tissue samples, and then released them. Um, and, and after that, in case of Helen, I, or the team tracked her for about three years. We wanted to investigate their movements around South Africa, movements offshore, try to get an idea of the overall, um, habitat use of great white sharks. And that's why we wanted to go for at least 50 great white sharks so we could get a big picture of where these sharks do hang out where they migrate to. What is their seasonal movements? Um, and it was it was only after I I filmed this footage, took it back home, and started looking at it that I saw the remnants of the satellite tag on her dorsal fin. And then when I could get better pictures of her dorsal fin and, and zoom in, I compared them to to the ones we had put satellite tags on. That's when I recognised it was it was the shark called Helen. Um, she had grown a lot. She, she was over four meters when she took on this whale, but when we put the tag on her, she was about 3.1, 3.2 meters, if I remember correctly. So it was about two or three years later, or four years later, um, six years later, actually. <laughs> and um, yeah, she had grown quite a bit. So uh, it, was, it, was, um, it was nice to see she was still alive and still functioning, but yeah, she had turned into quite a, quite a predator. Which is which is amazing, and I'm going to I'll say this again: that that footage of her actually making the attacks on the on the whale, what she does, how she does it, it's it, it's graphic. Okay, so if you're very squeamish and sensitive, maybe look through one eye only. But it is well well worth watching. When we come back, we're going to wrap up, and uh, I'm going to ask uh, Ryan a little bit more about Helen and what he did uh, or what she did with the whale, and uh, if there was any other. Uh, evidence to suggest that maybe sharks do attack whales. When we come back, it is what's involved. 
And we're back. What's involved? You're listening to and uh, my special guest, Ryan Johnson. We're talking about uh, the National Geographic uh, that, uh, documentary, which is uh, Shark versus Well. That's uh, going to be coming up at next Friday. Um, it's all of part of uh, the Shark Fest, which is happening on National Geographic Wild. Friday, uh, that's the 17th of July, 6 o'clock in the evening. Uh, you're going to be able to see that particular episode. It's frighteningly fascinating, as I said. Um, Ryan, so Helen comes in. She attacked very specifically uh, on this on this well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, well, the first thing I noticed was where she was concentrating her interest. And, and initially, she focused very much on that tail region. And what I worked out was the reason she was doing that was because just before the tail flares out, you've got the caudal peduncle there, which is that very thin part. And she could actually get her entire mouth around that. She could latch on. And and what we know about the physiology there is that there's very big veins there that are quite close to the surface and what she achieved in doing by latching on to that area and biting was to open up a vein and you could see you know as soon as she sort of hit that and opened up that vein these big plumes of blood started gushing out of the whale and and you realized you know what other what better way to overcome a, a prey species that big than by you know bleeding it out essentially and that's what she did she opened up that vein the blood started pluming out and then she she backed off she would stay around but she backed off and she circled she would come in and almost look for responses from the whale and it was almost as if she was trying to gauge how weak is this whale now how weak is this whale now and then it was around 30 40 minutes after that then she really started coming in again and her focus had switched from that tail up to sort of the head region of the whale and what she she would do is essentially come and try to latch on to somewhere on the head and when she did latch on she 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 just laid there quite still often and it was as if she was trying to tug the whale's head down just by her weight being on the head of this whale and that's what she did she just come back head went for the head pulled it down once she she actually got onto the top of the head and almost rolled the whale over. Um, but I realized she was actually trying to, you know, drown this weakened whale. And that's what she did. She pulled it down so many times that one of the times this whale just didn't have the energy then to come back up to the surface because we know these whales have to be air breathers. And when it couldn't get its head back up to the surface, it, it suffocated, it drowned, and then it just disappeared down and dropped down to the bottom of the ocean. And a few minutes later, Helen, the shark, disappeared. And I assume she went down there to start that final phase, which was the feeding phase. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Um, the rest of, of, of the story, did have we reached a conclusion? Do sharks hunt whales? I don't think I've reached a full conclusion yet. Um, what I do know is that the great whites aren't tracking along the migration path with the whales looking for opportunities. The great whites do still prefer hanging out in the area that they like 
and the whales go off on their migration up and down the coast without the great white sort of shadowing them. But, you know, those whales, particularly in, in South Africa, have to come through areas such as Plet, such as Mossel Bay, such as Hunsby, where you get these big concentrations of great white sharks. Um, and it's at those areas where whales can be vulnerable. But it's not many whales. You know, the first thing you have to know about these humpback whales is most of the time they'll be in loose pods and they can cooperate. And part of that family structure, that structure is so they can protect the weak ones. Um, they're also massively powerful and way too powerful, I think, for a shark to, to be able to take them on if it's a fit, healthy whale. So you need a situation where you get these very weak whales that also have become isolated from their, their, their family pods. Um, and I think that's definitely what happened in this situation. How rare it is, we don't know yet. But what I have found out, you know, through through doing research, because I'm not typically a whale scientist, but looking at the whale research, it's over 50 to 78 percent of humpback whales that will be entangled by human nets, human long lines during their life. And it's that type of entanglement that will make these whales basically a slow death for them. And whether they drown eventually or whether they wash up on the beach or whether a shark gets them, you know, you, you don't know. But it's this impact of, of humans with our netting and all the lines and everything we're sticking in the water that is ultimately causing so many of these whales to get to this weakened, very vulnerable state where potentially a great white shark can take them on. But it does require everything to come together. You have to have a big shark, it has to be an area where these great whites are naturally hanging out during the time of the migration and a, and a whale has to come through and be in that sort of vulnerable situation. I think it's very, very rare um, for all of that to come together, but um, I think it could become more common if, if us as humans keep on putting so much things in the water, particularly over these you know, very well-established migratory pathways that whales utilise. Yeah, you know, there's 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 not a lot to be said about the human race in terms of how we look after this planet, but uh, that's maybe a discussion for another day. Ryan, before I let you go, what's next for Ryan Johnson? Um, you know, <laughs> I'm waiting to get back out at sea again. Um, you know, we've got our our research institute. We, we, we want to do research, we want to want to go out and study because being out there is, is when you see these type of things, when you get the ideas. So it's, at the moment, it's just a waiting game. Um, I'm really hoping that, you know, this documentary does arouse interest um, and, and maybe National Geographic wants to come on and support more of our work down here. Um, that would be awesome. Um, you know, they're a great organisation and, you know, I'd love for them to jump in and do something like that. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I think, like many people waiting at the moment. <laughs> oh, yes, and none of us know when this waiting thing is going to end. It's, uh, I suppose there's positive and negatives on both sides. Ryan, it's, it's amazing that uh, you've managed to get that footage. It's, it's a great tale. Um, uh, somebody that's listening now, I can only recommend next Friday, 6 o'clock, Nat Geo Wild, go and check it out. It is an amazing, 
documentary. Some great footage there. Um, Ryan, thank you to you. Thank you for doing this. We wish you all the best. Um, and hey, keep in touch. Let us know if you're doing anything else interesting because we'd love to chat to you again. Well, thank you for talking to me, David. It's been it's been a real pleasure. And I'll, I'll definitely get in touch um, next time I get some really interesting information for everybody. Fantastic stuff. Ryan, we really appreciate it. Uh, all the best uh, with uh, the, the, the actual launch and uh, to watch. It's going to be really cool, I think, to be able to watch it on that GeoWorld next Friday. So there we go. That is my special guest, uh, Ryan Johnson. Told you it was well worth sticking around for. Um, and uh, we do say once again, thank you to him. And to you, I'd also like to say thank you for listening.